0: He is with the teens down in the TSM at The Rock, and uh, he spent a little bit of time down there with him, so you guys pray for what's going on down there, and pray for the children and what's going on in those ministries, and uh, most of all, even way more important than those, pray for me and what's going on here. Uh, so we want to, really, you just, this is like borrowing your dad's car, okay? You just want to drive it and be real careful with it and get it back home without messing it up. Um, I don't always do that. Uh, Sometimes I drive too fast and get a little bit too uh, far over into the ditches, but I'm going to try real hard not to do that tonight, so just bear with me. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to start reading verse 10. One announcement tonight, there's a prayer vigil tonight at 8.30 at Sportsman's Lake Park for Gary Marchman. I don't know if you've seen on Facebook or in the newspaper, uh, Brother Gary's really sick and Uh, struggling with some health issues, and so they're a a large group of people in the community. He's a public figure in the community, very well-respected individual, so a lot of people from all over the community are meeting together at Sportsman's Lake Park for this prayer vigil. Uh, He is a very prominent member of our church, very faithful, so uh, try to make it over there tonight, and let's let's make sure the Temple Baptist has a good showing at that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, it says, finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight and for your blessings. Lord, I ask you tonight just to meet with us. Uh, help this to be an encouraging time. Help it to be a, a time of information and education, Lord. And help it to be a time of exhortation where we can leave here excited about what your word says. Lord, we ask you to bless the other other uh, areas of ministry tonight. Lord, be with preachers. He meets with the teens and uh, be with the children in their ministries tonight. And just we ask that all the things we do tonight will bring honor and glory to you. We ask a special measure of blessing upon Brother Marshman. And uh, his uh, physical battles, Lord, I pray that you'd give the doctors wisdom as they diagnose and treat him. And Lord, just be with that family and give them grace during this time. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat. I, uh, You know, I remember as, as, a, as a youngster, now I, I don't ever remember not being in church. My family got in church when I was really young, probably four years old. And I remember this church that we went to for a long time in Little Rock, Arkansas. They had a, uh, <clears throat> had a group of people that they used to pick up on the buses. Now, we had a big bus ministry and went and picked people up, brought them to church. And this particular guy was, uh, um, I really don't know what's politically correct thing is. He just, uh, uh, he was a little, he was special. Is that right? Is that how you say that? And uh, he, um, the preacher, I remember the sermon he preached that night. Or that morning. He was preaching about laying your sins on the altar. And uh, he was using a passage from the Old Testament, and you know, this is uh, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, he's spitting about the third row and, I mean, laying it down, about laying your sins on the altar. And he's naming sins. He said, some of you need to lay your adultery on the altar. There's some of you out there that need to lay your alcohol on the altar. And he said, some of you out there need to lay those cigarettes on the altar. Well, this guy got to thinking. I guess he got under conviction. And when the uh, invitation started, he comes forward, kneels down, and takes his cigarettes out and lays them up on the altar. I'll never forget. I'm a little kid and I still remember that box of Marlboro Reds or that pack of Marlboro Reds laying up on the altar. Well, that's not the best part. <laughs> he gets up goes back to his seat. and He gets thinking about wanting a cigarette later <clears throat> and his cigarettes are laying up there. So we're on about the 14th verse of the invitation. He decides to go back down there. So he goes back down to the altar and kneels down. And as he kneels down, of course, the assistant pastor, he knows what he's doing. So he just reaches up. We didn't have this many steps. It was just one step. He reaches down and just slides the cigarettes back out of the way. And this guy doesn't see it. So he's down praying and reaching up, feeling around like this, looking for those cigarettes. I feel like that sometimes. I'll lay things on the altar And I go back and try to get them back off. Am I the only one that does that? Um, That has nothing to do with the sermon or not. It's just a good story. And sometimes I need to get a good story. I need a good story to get going. I need to hear you laugh, and that encourages me and gets me going. Uh, A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, I guess it was June 25th, we celebrated the 139th anniversary of probably the worst defeat in American military history. Now, I noticed on June 25th that we didn't put the American flags down the center of the, uh, uh, the median and cold because nobody wants to talk about this. It was a terrible defeat. We all know it. You've studied it in history. Uh, General Custer, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, thought it was a, a, a grand idea to take five battalions out of the 7th Cavalry and attack the middle of 2,500 of the most skilled horsemen, all armed with modern repeating rifles, and he felt like that was a good idea. I, I I wish, the bad thing is, they were all killed. All 209 and General Custer in the front. So nobody had the opportunity to ask him, what exactly were you thinking? I mean, what was really going through your mind? How did you feel like that was going to turn out for you? I was talking to a guy earlier in the week uh, or, or last week, and he was struggling with some things and just doing some things he didn't need to be doing. And I just asked, my question to him was, what was your end game there? And sometimes I, I look at this story of Custard and I wonder what his end game was. I seriously doubt that he had any intelligence about his enemy, how many they had, what he was facing, what he was up against. I, I, I doubt seriously that the leadership of the 7th Calvary did any kind of planning prior to battle. But you know, I got a question tonight. How prepared are you to defend yourself in the battle that you face? Do you have any intelligence on your enemy? Now, I always, preparing a sermon, especially on Wednesday night or on Sunday. For some reason, on Friday, uh, I'm comfortable with that group down there. I preach down there every week, and on Sunday, and 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 it seems to come a little easier for me when I preach down there. But I will second guess myself in preparation when I'm preaching in in big church, and uh, <laughs> um, and sometimes I'm looking at my sermon and I'm saying, okay, now why am I? Why do they even need to know this? Why? why is this important? And so I asked that question about this topic and this sermon, and the answer was very simply, false doctrine and apostasy. That's it. False doctrine and apostasy. We live in a world today that is inundated with a weak, watered-down, evangelical gospel that all it is concerned with is making somebody feel good about themselves. You know... If you go to the bookstore and you go to the religious section, it is full of books about basically the topic is if you'll give your life to Jesus, everything's going to be okay. If you turn on the television Sunday morning, you're going to see preacher after preacher that propagates the gospel of possibility thinking. If you'll just give your life to Jesus, everything will work out. Well. Somehow history doesn't line up with that philosophy. Now listen, I'm not telling you something. I I called this guy's name before and made people mad, so I'm not doing it this time. I I, I promise my intention is not to make anybody mad. But I've seen this guy on TV, really handsome, really nice suit, say if you'll give your life to Jesus, it'll all work out. I want to ask this individual if he's aware that Paul got his head cut off. Do, do you understand, and I've said this before when I preach, do you understand that every single disciple died a martyr's death except John, and he was boiled in oil and exiled at Isle of Patmos? It didn't work out all great for them. 50 million Christians were martyred during the dark ages, drug behind the chariots of Roman soldiers down the cobblestone streets of Rome, burned at the stake, thrown into the Colosseums and torn apart by lines. Maybe they just didn't understand that if you'd give your life to Jesus, everything would work out. Maybe we should stop trying to figure out sending aid and military support to the to the martyrs of Isis, maybe we should pack up a lot of those books and send them to them. Maybe we should pack up some videos of those preachers because they just haven't got it yet. You think that's accurate? I don't think so. I think that the truth of the matter is this. We face a certain battle. We're in a war. And the the problem I have with that is this. I'll settle down in a minute and quit walking everywhere. The problem I have with that is this. If you call me on the phone and you tell me you want me to come over to your house, we're going to grill out steaks and we're going to have homemade ice cream and peach cobbler. And I get there and there's a moving truck sitting in the driveway that you want me to help you load. I'm I'm going to be mad. All right. Now, if you call me and say, hey, I've got some really heavy items and a lot of stuff that I need to load onto a moving truck, and we have the same last name, and the amount of time that I've known you can be measured in decades, <laughs> then I'm, I know what I'm up against. I know what I'm facing then. The problem is we continue to be told that if you'll give your life to Jesus, it's all going to work out. Then when people do that, I watch them week after week after week come down to this altar in tears, broken hearted, because things are not working out for them like they think in their mind it's supposed to work out. And they leave and they fail and they're discouraged. Why is that? Because we just don't realize... What a battle we face. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight. He told Timothy to endure hardness as a good soldier. He told Timothy, he said, I have fought the good fight. The author of Hebrews, he's writing back to, to uh, the, the Jews who've been persecuted, who've been ju- uh, un- un- unimaginable things have happened to this first century church in their persecution. He said to them, you've endured a good fight of affliction. You see, tonight, we are in a battle. You face a fight on a daily basis. So my question to you is, what can we do to be prepared? How can we be ready for this battle? I think that if General Custer had done a little bit of background research, maybe a little bit of intelligence, he might have approached that battle in a different way. You see, I think sometimes young Christians and people who, who are newly saved, they just don't understand exactly what it is that you're facing. So when you fail and you continue to be discouraged and you don't understand why things are turning out the way they're turning out, you're led to quit because it's not working out the way you've been told it would. In our text in verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind. When I was a kid, we had car trouble. I remember we were in a, kind of a bad neighborhood. I told this story, Friday, uh, I think it was Friday night, it might have been Sunday. We, were, we had car trouble in a bad neighborhood and we had pulled up to this convenience store and my dad said, you guys stay in the car, I, I'm going to check this out. And he pops the hood, and the car was overheating and you know what, as long as I sat there in that car, I didn't have to be tough. Now I'm just a seven, eight year old little kid, I wasn't tough anyway, but I didn't have to defend myself, I didn't have to be strong, I didn't have to fend off any bad guys in that sketchy neighborhood, I would have to worry about all that. I can still remember being able to see between the hood and the car, my dad outside, the only thing that I had to do was stay right where I was at because he would take care of any issues that I had. My strength was in him, not in me. And you see, the thing is, we don't understand, I think, sometimes where exactly it is that our power comes from. We want to try to muster it up ourselves. And, and there are things that we will learn before this lesson is over with that you are responsible for. But the power in order to face this enemy doesn't come from you. It comes from the Lord. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind. You know, when you go into battle... One of the things that you want to know is how much artillery am I going to have? How much uh, uh, air support will we have? Are there going to be tanks that are going to be supporting the ground troops? You want to know about your power. So for a few minutes, first thing I want to look at is an explanation of your power. An explanation of the power that's available to you. The first thing there in A, I want you to see the source of, of your power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Did you get what that verse just said there in Romans? Jesus didn't muster up the power To walk out of that grave, the Holy Spirit gave him the power to walk out of the tomb. The verse there says that we have access, we possess that same power. Now, here's where the confusion comes in a lot of times, I think. If you read that verse down at the bottom of the handout there, you see there it says in Romans 8 9, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, I've mentioned this several times when I've spoke before. I guess it's just a, I don't know if it's a hobby horse. I don't think so. It's doctrine. It's in the Bible. It's a very important issue. And I think it's important today because it's a common threat. The day that you got saved and you put your trust in Christ, the Bible teaches us all through the book of Romans the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, that you got the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. There's nothing that I have to do. I don't have to muster anything up. It comes as a part of my salvation. It doesn't come subsequent. It doesn't come at a later time. I don't have to squinch up real hard to try to get the Holy Spirit in some type of emotional... I have to put my trust in Christ... And he imparts the Holy Spirit to me at salvation. That's it in a nutshell. I get salvation the same way I get the Holy Spirit the same way I got salvation. With no work of my own. It simply comes through the faith of the work that Christ did on Calvary. I can't be good enough to earn the help of the Holy Spirit. It comes with salvation. I can't muster up the... the, 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 I can't squinch up hard enough to get the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says right there, Romans 8 9, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So there's two categories there's saved with the Spirit, and there's unsaved without the Spirit. There's no in between. And that's, that Holy Spirit is the source of your power. Now, B, I want you to look at the purpose of this power. Here's the problem, here is the issue is that we live in such a narcissistic society. And everything is about me and us and, well, the Bible calls it Laodicea. But the Bible tells us, and I believe, that we live in the Laodicean church age where we're neither hot nor cold and everything. uh, So many people are convinced that the Bible was written for uh, the United States in 2015. It's an eternal book. And here's the thing. The purpose of that power is laid out very plainly in the second half of Acts chapter 1. He says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. The purpose of this power is very simply to give you the strength to carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. The reason that we are left here on earth as Christians is to be a witness to a lost world. That's why we're here. So the source of our power is the Holy Spirit that we get at the point of salvation. You ask the question, okay, well, how come those guys had to go to the, to the upper room and wait there? That, because they were saved prior. They, they were with Jesus. When Jesus ascended to heaven, then he, then he sent the Holy Spirit the Comforter. Now, where we are in history, that can never be repeated. Is there anybody in here who was born and saved prior to Jesus' ascension to heaven? No. So, after that, that group of people died out, salvation and the Holy Spirit indwelling were synonymous. They were simultaneous. They happened at the same time. And the purpose of Jesus sending that comforter was to empower them to be able to face the task that was ahead of them. Their number one goal, their number one mission was to take the gospel around the world. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, "...all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself." There was a time that we in our lives were separated from God as a result of our sin. And if you came to a point in your life where you realized you were lost without Christ and you were on your way to hell, and you put your trust in the work that he did on Calvary, the Bible tells us that that faith reconciled you. It joined you back to God. And he says here in this verse that all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So what we have here is an explanation of power. We have the Holy Spirit who has indwelled us for the purpose of carrying the gospel to a lost and dying world, for the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, you don't have the gift of of witnessing. You have a commandment to witness. It is your job, it is your duty as a Christian to be a witness and a testimony about what God has done for you. You say, well, I'm not sure if I know how to do that. Can you just tell people what he's done for you? Can you tell somebody how he saved you? That's it in a nutshell. That's preaching the gospel. Well, we look at this explanation of power There's two things I want you to know in this lesson tonight, and then there's some things I want you to do. first thing I want you to know is is that you have power. You have a source of strength in this battle that you face. But the other thing that I want you to see is an identification of the enemy. Verse 12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The first thing that I want you to see about this this enemy is his organization. You see it there in the layout. The principalities, a principality is an area that a prince would rule over. In Daniel chapter 10, there's a very interesting story where Daniel uh, uh, gives an account of a vision and a conversation that he has with an angel. And this angel tells him that for three weeks I was held up by the prince of Persia who was an an, an angel of of Lucifer, a demon. And he said, when Michael came along and helped me out, I was able to get away from him and come here to meet with you today. Now, what does that tell us? Well, the devil... As you can read there, the devil's not a cartoon character in some red pajamas with a pitchfork and a pointed tail. He's not leading a group of silly flunkies and diapers with red wings. Satan is the commander-in-chief of an organized army with intelligent, sophisticated, ranking structure that works together to carry out the next thing we're going to talk about. What I'm trying to say to you tonight is, is, is don't take him lightly this operation that the devil has if you study in the book of Revelation how he was kicked out of heaven because at that time I I, I figured that either it was Satan and two other guys Michael and Gabriel or Satan was the head angel the head guy and he believed in his heart that he could overthrow God that he could be even with God he's cast out of heaven and he takes with him a third of the angels of heaven now i 'm not sure how many that is, but the Bible says that there were ten thousands of ten thousands of angels now you can 't do the math on that because the Greeks did not have in in, the, in, in Greek there is no number above a thousand. those guys can only count to a thousand that 's it so when they say ten thousand i can 't count to I can barely count to a hundred uh, when, when they say ten thousand of ten it was an Infinite number. And he took a third of that with him. And in this third of this demonic uh, army of demons is a ranking file. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that works out. I could give you some type of surmise, but I'm not going to do that because it'd just be my opinion. But I know this there was a prince of Persia, there was a prince of Greece. They had areas domin- or they have areas and dominions that they see over. And what they do, they work together to carry out be, an agenda. The Bible says there that these principalities against powers, against rulers of darkness. First Peter chapter five and verse eight says, "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking. Whom he may devour. The devil's plan is simply to devour and destroy anything God has ordained. The greatest creation of God was man. The purpose of man was for fellowship with God. Soon after man was placed into the garden, with his companion Eve, Satan comes to destroy. Just as God had a plan for man, Satan has a plan as well destruction. Satan only has one goal, and that is to destroy you, your family, your children. Your loved ones, your neighbors, Temple Baptist Church, the pastor, the staff, everybody that he can get his claws into, that's who he wants to destroy. When he comes before God in the book of Job, God asked him where he'd been. He said he'd been walking to and fro about the earth. What, what, what's he doing That He's looking. He's on the prowl. He's searching. Peter said he was as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Listen to me, if I could identify to you tonight your enemy and have you to see that he's not a joke, he's not a cartoon character, he's a very organized, very, very detailed, very intelligent creature who cares nothing about anything but destroying you and everything that you love and everything that you care about. So for a guy to get on TV and tell me that if I'll just come to Jesus, everything's going to be okay, that offends me. It makes me sick because it's simply not true. If you dealt and counseled and talked with the people on a weekly basis that I do, that genuinely want to get better, they are trying to do better, and they continue to fail, I just don't think that somehow I've imparted to them what a dangerous enemy that they face on a daily basis. Somehow they haven't got their mind wrapped around that. or They'd approach things a little different. If I could get anything accomplished tonight in this Bible study, it's to get you to see that the devil is a very real thing who wants nothing more than to destroy you. That's his agenda. But he also, there's also a description here that I want you to see. Now here's here's the confusing thing. Here's the thing that, that I'll be honest with you, I, I didn't understand this until later in my adult life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, And whom the, we've got that up there? Yes. Read that with me. In whom the God of this world. Let's stop right there. And whom the God of this world. Now the Bible says, what, what we're looking at here, this verse says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, against spiritual wickedness in high places. First, second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says that he is the god of this world. He hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 says wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You know what I didn't quite have a a good grasp of? Is that prior to, to man's sin in the garden, man had dominion over the earth. The Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 1. How that man had dominion over all the beasts of the field. The other thing was that man was immortal. At that time, Adam and Eve could live eternally. When they sinned, they gave up. Their immortality and their dominion over the earth. What I didn't understand was that Satan took that dominion of the earth from them. We see in verse two above. We uh, let's see. We see in verse two above that Satan has taken rule over the systems of sin in a a sin-cursed world. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, Satan offers this world. Now, it's very important how this states this. Satan offers the world, it says, that is delivered unto me. He offers that to Jesus during this temptation. How is that possible? Well, because it was his to offer. I always wondered, how in the world is Satan offering the kingdoms of this world to Jesus in a temptation? Because they're his to offer. When man sinned, Satan took that dominion. And he rules. He's the God of this world and this system that we live in. Now, does that mean that God doesn't control everything? Sure, he could snap his fingers and Satan would be completely abolished and everything would be hunky-dory. But that's not how it works. God has allowed Satan to have the place that he has in this world because it's very simple. If I had a... 25 years ago, captured my wife, got her in a headlock, made her say the wedding vows. I come pretty close to doing that. It's a long story, but then would that really be love? No, no. She recognized what an outstanding character that I was. And she decided all on her own that I want to spend the rest of my life with that guy because he's something else. And I think she made a great decision. That's not a joke. I don't know why you're laughing. It was a joke earlier about the guy who reached up for cigarettes. That's the truth. She lives with me and has been with me for 25 years because for some crazy reason, she loves me. I don't have to force her to stay. I don't have to wonder every night if she's coming home from work. She's usually late, but she comes home. (laughs) I've asked the question before in my mind, and, you know, why didn't God put the tree in the garden? Why did he just not put that tree there? And then Adam and Eve would have never sinned, and everything would have been great, right? Who's ever asked that question before? Now, come on. Am I the only one? Here's why. Because with the absence, without evil. There is no good. And in order for you to prove your love to God, there must be wrong for you to make a decision to not do that. The Bible says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The reason that he's the God of this world is because God Big G allows little g to be the God of this world so that we are put in a position that we have to make a decision, a free will choice about what we're going to do. And that is how we prove our love to God. So when things don't work out for you and when they go awry, it's not because God's mad at you. Uh, Jonathan McNeese, one of my favorite preachers, was preaching a Uh, revival at this church. We were at the Civic Center. And he preached a sermon and he talked about how in the world could God allow a little child to be mistreated in an inappropriate way. We all know what I'm talking about. There's no kids in here. I I just realized that. But how in the world could God allow that to happen? God's just as mad about it as you are. But you see, he made man and he allows him to have a free will. And he has the ability to make his choices about what he wants to do, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And when you make the choice to do wrong, that's your choice, and it's influenced by the God of this world. So you see, what you're up against is not just a cartoon character. It's a very organized group of soldiers with a very serious agenda that their description is all spiritual warfare in a a kingdom that they rule. We're playing on their turf. You see, Custer didn't take into consideration that he had just marched these guys 30-something miles that day. He didn't take into consideration that they were malnourished, undertrained, under-equipped, and he didn't think about the fact that I'm fighting this group of 2,500 soldiers on their turf because he would have probably approached it a little bit different. You see, in our battle against the devil, we fail to take into consideration that we are the visiting team. He has home-field advantage because he's the God of this world. So when things don't work out the way you want them to work out, it's not because God's mad at you. It's because you're playing on his field. So those are the things I want you to know. First of all, the first thing I want you to know is the, you know, your power, the source of your power. I want to give you an explanation of your power. I want to give you some identification about your enemy. But the last thing is I, there's some things that I want you to do. There's some expectations of a soldier. In verses 14 through 18, it says, Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Two things I want you to pay close attention to there. Verse 11 where it says, put on the whole armor of God. It doesn't say, hey, stand there while I place it on you. No, he tells you to put it on. goes on and it says, that ye may be able to stand. Verse 13 says, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand. There are some expectations of a soldier. There's some things that you're expected to do. Every club, every organization, every fraternity has certain expectations of their membership. Why would you think that God would not put expectations upon you? There are certain things that He has for you. As a soldier enlisted in a fight against spiritual wickedness in high places, we have some responsibilities that fall on us. Leaders train, God help, Instruct, but at some point, the individual soldier must engage in the battle with the enemy. The leader cannot do it for him. That is why each soldier must be prepared for battle. Now, look here. I've never been in the military, but my dad was in the military. And I've heard him talk a lot about it, and I've watched a bunch of war movies, so I'm an expert on it. <laughs> I know you go to boot camp, right? You get trained. You got a drill sergeant that's there yelling at you. My dad was a drill sergeant. You got a drill sergeant who's yelling at you, making you do push-ups and making you run, and then you go to AIT and you get some advanced training, or you know what, whatever your MOS happens to be, and you get a lot of training, and they try to get you, get you all ready for battle. Uh, David Hackworth, the, at one time the most decorated living war soldier, said, "The more sweat on the training field, the less blood on the battlefield." And These soldiers get you, I mean, these leaders and these, these instructors and these sergeants, and they get you ready for the battle. There comes a point. You've got to pick the gun up and you've got to get in the battle. There's some expectations placed upon you. He can't do it for you. He can't put pressure on the trigger. You've got to do that. So there's some areas, three areas, that we need to be prepared in. The first one has all to do with mobility. You see, these soldiers or these common people at this time, especially these Jewish people that he's referring to here, they wore these long tunics. I think I'm saying the word correctly. Looks like a long dress to me. But I guess there was a difference between the women's robes and the men's robes. I don't know. But <laughs> when they got ready to do something, they would literally take these dresses or these robes and pull them up between their legs and wrap them around their waists and tie them. And that did a couple of things. It protected them, but mostly it made them mobile. They could run, they could go into battle, they could do some type of strenuous work. Well, he says for us to gird up our loins with something very specific. He said having your loins gird about with what? Truth. And this thing has everything to do with our mobility. Because if that thing's not tied up and out of the way, what happens? You get tangled up in it. You know what happens to us, unfortunately, in so many times? is number one, the first area that you need to be prepared in as a soldier is in your view. Our view. How we see things. How we view things. How we weigh these things out. If we don't view these things in relation to the Scripture, then we're going to get entangled in these things. In today's society, it's so inundated with information through the Internet, television, social media. It's easy to become entangled, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, and verse 20, with the things of this world. The only way to evaluate our views properly is to weigh them on the scales of truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 4 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Here's the thing, our feelings and emotions and experiences are always secondary when compared with truth. Now, let me give you some scripture for that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that's just one phrase in a big passage there. It says, for we, also, for we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, this is a great story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible or in the New Testament. Peter is writing a letter back to the first church in Jerusalem. He says in this particular chapter, in this verse, in this area right here where he's talking, he's trying to tell them, he says, I want you to understand something. He said, I'm not telling you a Bible story. He said, I'm not telling you a wives' tale. He said, I'm not making up some, some mythology. He said, I'm telling you about something that I've seen with my own eyes. Now you think about Peter and his experience. Peter, uh, I would assume if you study history a little bit and the community that they lived in, a small fishing community in Galilee, and the fact that uh, Peter was closely associated with John and uh, was a uh, uh, ran a commercial fishing boat for John's dad, and John was Jesus. These guys, more than likely, all grew up together. So here's Peter. He's probably seen Jesus as a 12-year-old confounding the... The Pharisees in the temple, he's seen this. We know without a question that Peter was was present when Jesus performed his very first miracle when he turned the water into wine. Peter was present for every miracle in between and the very last one. Peter was present when he calmed the storm. Peter was there when he allowed Peter to walk on the water. These are all things that Peter experienced and things that Peter seen. Peter gives an account in this passage right here where he says he tells them about the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, this thing probably trumps all of the other experiences that Peter had because at this particular time, Peter seen Jesus in all of his glory. And you know what he said? He said, We have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? That means this. When your experiences and your emotions and your opinions differ from Scripture, the Scripture is more sure. I had a conversation with a guy just a few weeks ago. And this guy, he's an assistant pastor at a church, not this church. He says to me something that is directly opposed to black and white principles of the Scripture. Tells me about something that he had seen. And he said, i tell you what, though. He said, he said they got a lot of good results out of him. And I'm really not sure how to respond to this guy. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be humble. I don't want to act like my brother. My brother's really obnoxious. No, I'm just kidding. So finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, well, you know what, man? It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter even what the results were. Because Paul told Timothy, if you strive for the mastery, strive lawfully. There is a certain way that you do things. You weigh those things according to Scripture. And listen, when your experiences and when your emotional experience differs from Scripture, guess what? you probably ate too many burritos the night before. Because scripture's right and you're wrong. That goes for me, it goes for you. And Paul said, if somebody gets up and preaches something contrary to what I've preached to you from these scriptures, he said, I'm wrong. He said, if I get up and preach to you something that's contrary to what I told you before, I'm wrong. He said, if somebody else gets up and preaches a gospel that's contrary to what I've told you, he said, let him be accursed. You know what that means? It means let him go to hell. If he preaches to you something contrary to the scripture, he said, mark them which cause divisions amongst you contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught and have no fellowship with them. Why is that? Because... Everything should be weighed in your view scripturally. It says have your loins girt about with truth. Why is that? Because we get entangled in worldly affairs and things that are going on and we will get our emotions involved and we get our feelings involved in something and we base an opinion or a view on something based upon our emotions rather than upon Scripture and that's where we get off base. Perfect example. Very hot topic right now. Gay marriage. Now, am I against homosexuals? Of course not. They're individuals that have a soul that need the gospel, that need to put their trust in Jesus, and hopefully get saved and go to heaven when they die. That's what this whole thing's about. We're not talking about the individuals. We love them. We care for them. But the truth of the matter is this. Regardless of how close you are to that particular loved one who's caught up in this difficult sin, and you want the best for them, and you want them to be happy, the Bible explains very, very plainly in Romans chapter 1 what the scriptural view of that is. And it's right there in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says, Who changed the truth of God into a lie. You see society manipulates and changes the Bible to fit their needs. And when we get entangled with those things, what happens? We get tripped up. We fall. So the first thing that you want to prepare yourself in is in your view. And you make sure that your view of worldly matters are weighed against scripture. Not against emotion, not against opinion. Well, I had a guy tell me one time, man, you don't know what I've seen. I've I, I seen a, a, a really a great experience. This person fell out in the Spirit. That's not Scripture. It, it's, it's just not. So when you see something like that, you weigh it against Scripture, and you go with Scripture. When somebody tells you that you have to have an experience subsequent to your salvation in order to get the Holy Spirit, you take them back to Scripture. And your experience and your idea and your opinion doesn't matter if it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. So don't get entangled. That first thing, your view, is all about your mobility and your ability to be able to move as a soldier. The second thing there, is all about methodology. The second half of verse 14 has, says having on the breastplate of righteousness. And it has everything to do with our actions. You see here's what happens. You formulate a view of things. You begin to have an idea of about how things should be and how they should ha- how you view these things and based upon your belief will result in your action. Your doctrine dictates how you behave. Do you understand that? Think about that for a second. How you be- believe will dictate how you behave. That's why it's so important that you base your views upon Scripture because what you believe will dictate how you act. Romans chapter 6 verses 13 and 18 and 19 talks all about yielding your members For works of righteousness. The way that you protect yourself. See, this breastplate of righteousness, it protects all of those those important organs. Your heart, your liver, your kidneys. These things that if an arrow or a dart or a spear were to hit, death is certain. How do you protect that? The Bible says, by righteousness. Righteousness. That's your actions, what you do, how you conduct yourself. So we need to be prepared in our view because it affects our action. The last thing. There's as a servants of the Lord and soldiers in his army. There are a certain code of conduct that we're expected to maintain. Every corporation, place of employment, private club or institution has expectations of their affiliates. We as children of God are expected to sustain a level of holiness in our action. We get accused as Baptists as being, uh, you know, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, I'm getting to that in my next point. So, The next thing is mechanism. All to do with how you defend yourself. And that next thing that I was about to talk about, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. If we know he's coming, if we know he wants to devour us, then it makes good sense to have a defense system, doesn't it? To be ready for this thing. To be looking for him coming. So how do we do that? The very first thing, A, is in your basis. One of the lessons that I teach, and I've run several people off in life recovery over this because they get mad at me because I'm teaching a Bible study instead of some steps program about how to quit drinking. I think if you get saved and put your trust in Christ, you'll have a lot better chance of quitting that. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, <clears throat> I've never quit anything. Uh, hang in there. Your basis. He says says there in verses thirteen and fourteen, in whom also. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession into the praise of His glory. That verse fifteen says that your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. Of peace. Now, what does all this mean? Well, your feet and your shoes and these boots and these these what these people wore when they went into war. I don't know about you, but if I'm fixing to go to work, uh, framing a house, I really don't want to wear my Sunday slippers. You know what I mean? I want some good boots on because I want my foundation to be secure. I taught this lesson, as I was saying earlier, in life recovery about eternal security and about the sealing work that we just read about in Ephesians there of the Holy Spirit. How that when a person puts their trust in Christ, they're sealed until the day of redemption. Listen, if you spend every day of your life wondering whether or not you're saved, you'll never accomplish anything. Because uh, an insecure soldier, a soldier who has no peace and no stability, he's never going to be effective. If you have to wonder every day if God's got mad at you and kicked you out of the family, you will never be able to go forward for God. If you have to wonder, did I really mean it? Was I really. Did I really plug in? Then I suggest to you that you come down here or you get with me or you get with someone and you get that nailed down because you will never be effective for the Lord until you have your salvation secured. That's the very basis of this battle because what's the devil going to do? Every time you slip up, every time you make a mistake, he's going to slip up and whisper in your ear, you see, I know you aren't saved. I've had some tragic mess-ups in my life. I'm a champion at messing up. But you know what? At my very lowest point, I knew one thing. I knew I was saved. I knew on February the 1st, 1981, in a little Sunday school room at Fairview Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, that I put my trust in Christ to save me. And nothing I could do would ever have that taken away from me. Because it wasn't based upon me. It wasn't predicated upon my actions. It was based upon what he had done for me when he died on Calvary. It wasn't based upon my goodness. It was based upon his goodness. So therefore, when I reached a point in my life that I had finally realized my life has to get straightened out, I didn't have to get saved again. I knew God loved me. I knew he had saved me. I knew he was my Heavenly Father. I just had to come get forgiveness. I just had to restore fellowship. You must have a good basis in your defense. The, the foundation of our defense against Satan is the secure knowledge of our salvation in Christ. The only hope for peace, in our, is, the only hope for peace is in our salvation, Romans 5.1 tells us. A soldier who lacks confidence will always be an easy target for the enemy. If as a result of his fear he turns and runs, this gives the enemy an open to attack. A lack of stability limits our effectiveness and therefore our foundational defense against Satan is our security and our salvation. The very basis for our defense against Satan is knowing that I'm a child of God. He can't take that away. He can't change that. He can't mess that up. I can't even mess that up because it's not based upon me. It's based upon Him. And then very quickly, last the last thing in defense there is very simply belief. That's, that shield talks about there. Above all, th- above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of wickedness. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What did it say earlier in Ephesians chapter 6? For we wrestle not wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know what? Your ex-wife, she's not the enemy. Okay? Your boss at work that tr- mistreats you, he's not the enemy. That in-law that always talks bad about you at the family gatherings, she's not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil. The Bible says that it's not flesh and blood. It says right there, for we... For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God in the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the what? The knowledge of God. And bringeth into captivity every what? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. The devil's attacks always come in our mind. That's, his, that's where he comes at us. He sends those fiery darts and those wicked imaginations and those things in our mind. That's where he begins to work on us. Nobody's ever woke up one day, threw back the covers, and said, I'm going to the dope house. That never happens. Even a person who's, who's struggled with addictions, they don't just wake up one day and jump in the car and drive somewhere and buy a sack of dope. They start to think about it. The devil begins to work on their minds. Nobody's ever just gone to work one, one day and grabbed some woman and said, Hey, let's go commit adultery. No, those things begin to work where first? In your mind. Since the devil's attacks always come in our minds first, he hits us with the fiery darts of doubt. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Yea, hath God said. I call it the yeah buts. You know? I know what the Bible says, but yeah, but. That's why we're always trying to, to justify our actions. Our shield of faith comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith is gained through Scripture. Our sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, this passage tells us here. Therefore, our defense against Satan, as well as our offense against Satan, is Scripture. If you have trouble with your thought life, I bet you could conquer that if you made it your job to go through the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, and memorize every verse that had to do with controlling your thought life if you have an anger problem I I don't I, I realize that there are diagnosable issues that a person requires medication but I think the book of Proverbs is some of the greatest medicine that you could ever apply to your anger issues you memorize every verse in the book of Proverbs and you meditate on those things and you keep that scripture in your mind and when the devil comes along, he whispers something in your ear and he fires that dart at you and you respond back to him with the scripture that you're meditating on. Guess what he'll do? He'll run the other way because the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our defense against the devil is all right here in this Scripture. The way that the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to empower you is by the Scripture that you give, make available to Him to help you with. That's where it's all at in the book. If you recognize this evening and you identify Satan as your enemy and you understand what you're up against and you know in your mind that I have a power source through the Holy Spirit that I can plug into... And that if I'll take this scripture and I'll memorize it and put it in my mind, that power that's available to me through the Holy Spirit will be brought to me through this scripture that I've memorized and meditated upon and now I have the ability to defend myself against the devil. It's not about possibility thinking. It's not about sending, uh, you know, one ninety nine ninety nine to a TV preacher and everything's going to turn out okay. Because it may not turn out okay. But you know what? That all goes back to the very thing that we talked about tonight. It's not predicated and based upon our view of things. It's how God views it. So what the world sees, Paul said, "For me to live is gain. To, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. A short time later, they cut his head off. He wasn't upset about that. To be absent with this body is to be present with the Lord. When we get in the Scripture, we change our views. We begin to believe what God has said about our lives. Guess what happens? We begin to see things the way He does. And now what we once saw as failure is no longer failure. It's success based upon the Scripture. But we can't view things the way modern-day society tells us. We must base our views and our beliefs and guard ourselves with truth. Every head bowed and every eye closed... If I could